You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. Just this continued journey in the middle of a crazy global pandemic and in the middle of social and political upheaval. Um, this is why we do community and this is why we have this space. Um, of course, I wanted to remind you as we're getting started that uh, if you haven't done so already, now's a great time to grab communion elements, whatever you'll be using for um, this shared sacrament that we do together each week. Um, and one of those things that gets to unite us together even when we're separate. So. Um, whatever that is, go ahead and grab those if you don't already have them. Um, and I, I also wanted to let you know that last week's um, uh, Zoom is uh, on our podcast. So we're going to be posting the audio version of that on the central cast. Um, we didn't initially do that because um, we wanted everybody to be here and be able to connect Sunday mornings. But we have gotten requests all the way throughout and sent out kind of individual like links to those recordings. Um, we definitely want to make sure that they're available if you miss a week and you want to stay connected. Um, so we post in those every week. Uh, it's just the audio on the podcast, but we do have access to <clears throat> that video. So if you ever want it and we don't have the link posted, you can reach out to um, Aaron or Max or myself, uh, Andrew Bocock also, I think, for uh, the time being, anyone who has access to the Zoom account or leads areas here at the church has that login information to grab those. So reach out to any of us um, and we're happy to get that for you. Um, yeah, but love you guys. I'm so glad you're here and I'm gonna turn things over to Max as we get started to open us in prayer. Thanks, Babo. Um, yeah, just to continue um, on those themes, um, of thankfulness, especially for, um, those of you, <laughs> let's be honest, it's all of us, right, to some degree or another, who are just going through daily, um, rhythms of hard decisions and hard news and hope mixed in there and, um, there's something about being the church in the midst of this year that is equal parts so deeply hard and difficult um, because, um, because the world is so clearly and violently not as it should be. Um, and yet at the same time, right, in many ways we, are, we have been prepped <laughs> for these types of moments um, since, you know, since the people of God started um, living life in a new way and centering hope um, and looking through um, and in the midst of our suffering, right, for a God who suffers alongside of us. So um, I hope there are at least glimpses. I hope there are at least moments for you throughout the days, throughout the weeks, where you can hold on to that. And that seems real. Um, I will be the first to admit that it can be really, really hard these days to remember, right, to hope, to feel the capacity to hope um, and the capacity for joy. So like Bob said, it's, it's 
those sorts of things are what make me so thankful that we do still have this space, right? Where we can hear from one another and we can encourage one another and we can rejoice with one another and we can bear our sorrows with one another um, because it reminds us of our humanity and that in, in this together, this thing that we do together, we have hope um, in, a, in a better world um, and, and a hope and justice and love and peace and righteousness. So uh, with that, would you join me in, in prayer as we, as we open up this morning? God who meets us in our suffering and our brokenness. God, we take this time to remind ourselves of our humanity, of our mortality, of our fragility, God. And God, we remember that our humanity is not necessarily something to be seen as a limitation, um, God, or a curse, but rather a blessing as a reminder, God, that each day, each moment, we can approach with um, holiness. God, may our mortality remind us that each day we have is a gift. May our mortality remind us, God, that each laugh and smile that is brought to our faces, uh, God, is a reminder of joy and beauty in the world. God, may our mortality remind us to seek those points, to seek those moments. And God, this is not to ignore the sorrow on our hearts. This is not to pretend like everything is fine, so we're gonna laugh it away, even though that feels so tempting sometimes. And if, and if we need to do that, God, that can be therapeutic as well. But may we be reminded that together, God, in a shared hope that we have as demonstrated by the gathering of your people um, on Sundays, on Sunday mornings for years, God, but any other time um, we come together as reminders to each other that there is something worth hoping for, that there is something worth loving for, God. So remind us of that deep love that we believe is world-changing. Remind us of that deep sense of hope that we can cling to even when no hope seems um, evident. That hope, God, that lives deep in our bones and our souls, that even as we cry and even as we mourn all the things, all of the burdens that are piling on and on and on, that we still remember that each day, God, is a chance for hope and renewal and rebirth and new life. So if it, even if it's not today, even if it's not tomorrow, even if it's not this year, God, allow us to hold on to that hope of new life. Let us believe that it's coming. And God, in the meantime, may we hold one another. May we share our love with each other and those around us. May we imagine and dream what a better world will look like 
and then God, as the hands and the feet of Christ in this world, we may we go and do and make and build that world that we long so deeply to see. Equip us for this mission this morning and every morning as we rise. Amen. Thank you so much, Max. Um, this morning, I wanted to share uh, a liturgy that was written by a pastor named Rebecca Sutton from the United Church of Christ. And it's a um, short, uh, responsive liturgy. Um, so we get to come together and we get to share in these words together. And um, it is both a prayer for the deepest places of need in our society and in each other's lives. It is also a confession of um, our need to act and the difficulties and failures that we have in doing those things. So know that as we um, speak these words and pray these words together as we recognize injustice and call out injustice and poverty. We also take recognition for um, the places where we fall short in these things. And it's a liturgy and a prayer for hope in a changing of this world. And as Max um, prayed with us just now, um, our partnership with God in doing that that we can actively be involved in that. Um, so I'm gonna share my screen now. And as always, um, I will read the parts in bold and we'll um, pray together the parts that are not in bold. <clears throat> Would you join me in prayer? Pray for those who are hungry Pray harder for those who will not feed them. Pray for those who struggle each week to pay their bills. Pray harder for those who do not care. Pray for those who are homeless. Pray harder for those who deny themselves. Pray for the sick and lonely. Pray harder for those who will not give comfort. Pray for those who cry out for dignity. Pray harder for those who will not listen. Pray for those oppressed by unjust wages. Pray harder for those who exploit them. Pray for those who bear the yoke of prejudice. Pray harder for those who discriminate against them. Pray for those whose basic needs are denied. Pray, pray, pray harder for, for public, public officials who cater to the greedy and, and, and ignore those bound Gracious God, we are your people. We come together with all of our varying beliefs, all of our different backgrounds, but we come together united in a desire to shape and change this world. God, as we see injustice around us, uh, in our communities, in this community, in this country and throughout your world, 
God, we recognize that we have the ability to make a difference and change. We also recognize that we partake in these very systems um, that create oppression and poverty. Um, God, wherever those things are, it's our prayer that you would move us, that you would shape us, that you would convict us, that we would not be content to stay where we are, that we would be continuing to seek to grow um, closer and more fully, um, that our eyes would continue to be opened to the injustices we have not yet seen. We pray for this community that we would be changed. We pray for the larger communities that we're a part of. And God, we pray for our leaders. We pray for our politicians. In the brokenness of the systems that we have, we pray for change and for reformation. Let us be examples of hope in this world. Forgive us for our shortcomings as we fall. Thank you for holding our hand as we stand back up. Let us be people who journey <clears throat> and who fight this fight together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now is the time in our service and um, we'll be taking communion. So if you haven't had a chance to grab something yet, please do. As always, please feel free to um, share in the chat if you'd like um, what you're using for communion today. Today I have my go-to Cheez-Its and then Karis put Chardonnay in this class. <laughs> She's like, hey, it's wine. So it's communion. So that's what I have today. Uh, happy communion to y'all. Um, as Bob said, this is a, this is a time that we, a hint of lime tortilla chips and diet Coke. Yes, that is what I'm talking about. Cinnamon bread and coffee. That sounds awesome. Um, this is a time where we embody, um, coming together and breaking bread, quote unquote, um, and, um, partaking in being the body of Christ together, even if for a moment, right. As we all take together, as we all pray together, um, for that moment, we become the embodiment of Christ in the world, um, showing our unity, showing um, our hope for a better future. So um, today I'm just going to read real briefly. I've been hearing so much this week and last week um, about prophets, about prophecy. And if you have any overlapping circles, right, of parts of the church, like many of us do, um, there's been a lot of talk around what God is ordaining and appointing and what God is not ordaining and appointing. And a lot of people trying to use that um, and their interpretation of that um, to push whatever it is that they believe. Um, and um, you, if you've been here for any amount of time, you probably recognize that this isn't this isn't really how sexual approaches and the concept of prophecy and prophets. Um, so I thought it would be a nice, I have a, a reading just real briefly to read, but a nice reminder that I want us to think of the ways that we are 
profits, right? And not in a some dream or vision um, that we have and then tell people as if it's some, you know, magic trick or something um, along those lines. But by living our very lives and by speaking truth to power and by healing, right? And by um, loving the way that we see Jesus do in the gospels, um, I think is one of the most powerful um, prophecies, right? The most powerful way to be a prophet and to speak truth to a culture that is um, deaf to it and that we could partake in. So a little reading called For the Lips of Prophets. For those weary of sharing their pain, for those who speak but are not heard, for those whose stories began centuries ago, for those whose testimonies are deemed a false witness, for those who have nowhere to turn for rest, for those who refuse to be silenced, for those who whisper tenderly and knowingly to their kin, for those who shout a holy protest to their oppressors, for those who wonder if there's any point, for those who cannot keep truth to themselves, for those who wail for all that has been lost, for those who sing for all that we might become, for those who call others to rise, for those whose voice reaches out like open arms for the hurting. May you be nourished in body and soul. May you be guided in wisdom. May community uphold you. Through the lips of the prophets, your kingdom draws near. And with that, I invite you to take the bread, the Cheez-Its that you have, the root veggie chips, that's great. Um, and as we take, remember that we are the body of Christ. And similarly, I invite you to take the cup and as we drink it together, Remember the covenant that God has made with us and we have made with the world to love it. Brothers and sisters, as we take communion together, may we remember our calling of truth speakers, of bearers of witness to sorrow and joy alike. Amen. And next, I think Angie has a few announcements for us. Good morning, everyone. All right, so this week, um, now that Bob is back, we are definitely going to have the gathering on Wednesday at 7.30. Philosophy is Thursday nights at 6 p.m. They're both via the Zoom link. Uh, we have upcoming blood drives December 10 and January 11. And then just a reminder that May's been sending out lessons for the kids weekly. So reach out to her. Um, we'll have her put her email in the chat so you can reach out if you wanna get on that uh, listserv. And then finally, just a reminder that if anyone has any needs, um, please reach out to anyone on leadership and we will help out in whatever way we can. All right, thank you. Thanks, Angie. So. 
Um, now is the time that we share our joys and concerns, our prayer requests or words of thanksgiving. Um, I invite you to unmute if there's something you want to share, or if you're more comfortable, you can always, you know, put it in the chat window and I'll do my best to address it from there. So joys and concerns today, anybody? Hey, Aaron, do you mind if we pray again for our government and our nation? Um, sure. Obviously, there's been a lot of changes, but I don't know how about all of you, but there's a lot of discord that I'm seeing on social media with family and friends and stuff. So just pray for all of that. Yeah, absolutely. Let's pray for, let's pray for peace. Loving God, we lift up our, our communities, our friends, our family, this nation. Um, our leaders, we pray for justice. We pray for peace. We don't know the way forward quite often, and we don't know how unity might even ever occur. Um, some do not want unity. <laughs> and, and sometimes unity is not justice. Um, but we pray for wisdom in these matters, and we pray for open minds and open hearts. We ask that we might be given the words to say to those in our circles of influence that we might know how best to navigate those difficult relationships that we might be agents of your love, of your kind of peace um, during this season of this holiday season when friends and family will be in contact and, and gathering to some, at some extent, we ask that we might be agents of your love and words of your wisdom. In Jesus name, amen. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Angie. It's something we don't know. I don't even know how to pray for some of that stuff, to be honest. You know, it's, but um, and maybe that's the prayer <laughs> is uh, help us, help us to learn how to pray for this. <laughs> thanks, Angie. Anybody else today? Well, with that, I'm going to turn it back over to you, Max, for a, a reflection. Thanks, Aaron. <clears throat> um, I'm going to play a music video. We haven't done one of those for a few weeks now. Um, this is a beautiful song originally written by Connor Oberst, um, but in this video covered by uh, Pasadena native Phoebe Bridgers. I'm sure some of you um, like, um, but it's, it's, it's always struck me. I listened to it at the very, she, um, she, she posted it. Um, it's a very just raw video with no editing or anything. At the beginning of quarantine, I, I just remember early on in April, just watching this one night and just like sobbing. <laughs> so it, it just has a as a place um, in my heart. I know just from how beautifully simple it is, um, and it's it's actually about the life of Frank Lloyd Wright. I don't, I don't know. I never know how deep you guys want to go into songs, but I love talking about um, songs and their meaning and stuff. Um, but it's it's about the life of Frank Lloyd Wright, the architect. Um, so it has some really interesting pieces in there about it, but it has this refrain that always comes back to about building something that's sacred to the end and how we, we go through these phase of wanting to build something that's sacred to the end and how Frank Lloyd Wright for many of us is this architect, right? That his buildings are just these sacred objects and these, 
and beautiful things that are now these places where people pay lots of money to go and kind of ask the question of if he was just trying to build something sacred. Um, and I think that's what we try to do here. I think that's what we try to do um, in not the actual church building, right? But building a community um, that's sacred um, and lasting. So that's all I'll say about that for now, unless anyone else wants to talk more, um, but I'll play this. It's called Mema Borthwick. Sound? No, no sound. All right, I was afraid of that. I love how when there's no sound, we just make no yeah. sound gestures. You know what I'm Yeah, no, that's good. That's perfect. I saw this and I was like, okay, that's probably <laughs> enough. Because I was, I was trying to be like this. I was like, can you hear the sound? <laughs> the answer is no. All right, let's try that again. Let's see, I might've just clicked the wrong. Yes, okay, there we go. You don't have to fall in with an endless stream of famous men. Pretty as a portrait, look like Mamma Borthwick on that shining brow.
Uh, that was that was beautiful. I love that song, Max. Thank you for thank you for sharing that with us today. Absolutely. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna. Is that downloadable? <laughs> you know, if she's on iTunes, Apple Music. She definitely is, but that was originally an Instagram uh, live video, and yeah, I was yeah. so beautiful at the time that I actually screen recorded it because mm. Instagram videos disappear um, after 24 hours, and so oh, I was like, okay. I, I need this song. So thankfully, yeah. someone else did that and uploaded it to YouTube. I don't think there's an official version, though, but I will look and I will share if I can find it. Okay. Her, all, all the rest of her stuff is totally on um, everything. Okay. All right. Cool. And, and what is her name again? Phoebe Bridgers. Okay. Well, good. Thanks. Um, so I want to talk about an important concept today that has reshaped a lot of my thinking about Christianity over the last five years or so and helped me reconstruct uh, a faith. Reconstruction is important uh, during or after deconstruction, right? Uh, this is an understanding that helped me reconstruct a faith that I find both true to the scriptures and also true to life. It's called weak theology, weak theology. And this term was invented by our friend uh, and renowned uh, philosopher and theologian, Jack Caputo. Some of you know who he is. Although he didn't invent the idea, it's been around since the dawn of the church. And it's grounded in this idea that the suffering servant of the Lord, the, the man of sorrows, the meek and mild Jesus of Nazareth, the crucified Christ, he's no symbol of power and might, but rather he is a symbol of suffering under power and might and a symbol of God's solidarity with those suffering under worldly power and might. The Apostle Paul, of course, picks up on these themes in his writings and offers us perhaps the most concise exposition of weak theology in 1 Corinthians 1, where he says this about Jesus. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things and the despised things of the world, the things that are not, to reduce to nothing the things that are. This is weak theology, and it holds implications for every aspect of our faith and practice. But in order to really understand it, we have to first understand strong theology, because it's kind of, it's an opposition to strong theology, which is the theology that I think most of us grew up with and are familiar with. The God of strong theology is the almighty God on high, the all-powerful, all-knowing, supreme being who intervenes in history, often supernaturally, to accomplish his will. This is the God who people invoke when they say, everything happens for a reason. You've probably heard people say that before. You know, God is in total control. Nothing that happens in the world is outside the scope of his will, whether it's good or bad, right? This, this strong theology inevitably causes major problems when we're confronted with life's profound suffering, like the death of a child. People will say, well, this is just one of, uh, one of those mysteries of God's will. We can't understand him and his ways, but we must trust that it's part of his good will. And maybe one day when we get to heaven or something, we'll understand it. Or you'll, you'll hear people say, who survive a horrible car accident, that it was a miracle and that God was looking out for them. Of course, no mention is ever made of the people who died in the other car, right? We're left to assume that God wasn't looking out for them, which is always a horrible uh, inference that always accompanies 
such claims. These are the kind of intractable problems that strong theology always creates. Weak theology, on the other hand, seeks to solve these problems by nipping, nipping them in the bud, cutting them off before they even get started. Weak theology says God is not all powerful, that the God revealed in the crucified Christ is not all powerful. The crucified God is not a symbol uh, that everything makes sense and, it, and, and is under control, but rather the opposite, that the world is fundamentally out of control, unjust and chaotic. Christian faith is not a way of explaining the world, but a way of embracing the world the way it really is, courageously so. This is part of what it means to embrace the cross, I think. For me, speaking for me here, uh, a Christian response to suffering is to say it's unjust and it doesn't make sense and it probably never will, such is life. But in the embrace of this difficult truth, we can find some serenity and the strength to go on. We can experience a kind of resurrection after such a painful crucifixion. I think we underestimate sometimes the human capacity for such a courageous move as this. I'm, I'm reminded of James Baldwin's words. We are capable of bearing a great burden once we realize that that burden is reality and we arrive at where reality is. Christian faith to me uh, is such a courageous embrace of reality, a, a courage to face difficult truths and not gloss over them with vacuous and glib religious platitudes and, and Bible verses, which is always a reaction born out of insecurity and anxiety. Christian faith, faith in the crucified Christ, faith in the death of God is to me the only way to resolve these problems, which to some sounds like weak faith, right? Or, or no faith at all, but I think it's actually a kind of strong faith. Some would say, well, what about the resurrection? That's a pretty good case for strong theology. But I read the resurrection through the lens of the crucifixion, through the lens of the cross. The resurrection for me does not invalidate the cross or undo it in any way, but fulfills it. The cross and the resurrection are like two sides of the same coin. In this way, I see the resurrection as a way of overcoming death by embracing death, transcending death, by accepting it as a part of life. But I also see the resurrection as an insurrection, as Peter Rollins puts it. The resurrection is an insurrection, an insurrection against the principalities and powers of this world, the forces of, of death and darkness that seek to oppress and harm. For me, the resurrection is not about uh, personal salvation and going to heaven when, when I die or a way of literally cheating death but the resurrection is about humanity's liberation from the murderous powers of this world. To say Christ overcame death is to say that Christ overcame the murderous and oppressive powers of this world, the ideologies and institutions that oppress and harm, which in Jesus's day was the religious authorities in cahoots with the, with the state, with the Roman Empire. It was the chief priests in cahoots with Pontius Pilate. And I think we see a similar relationship today between evangelicals and the Republican Party. And to that unholy alliance, the resurrection still stands as an insurrection. Here we see how both strong and weak theology hold great implications for our politics. Strong theology is on full display today among evangelicals and their belief that Trump is a chosen leader and they are a chosen people, a chosen religion, and for that matter, a chosen culture, right? That God chose 
white European Christians to settle this land hundreds of years ago and establish a Christian nation. Maintaining that supremacy is what they mean when they say, make America great again. Strong theology is always a kind of dominion theology and a kind of, uh, it is authoritarian by nature. Strong theology uh, also often leads people to react to the world's problems by turning to thoughts and prayers rather than to more practical actions because the thinking is, you know, everything is under God's control and therefore we can just pray and let God do his thing. Weak theology says, no, God has no hands in the world but our hands. God has no voice but our voice. If we do not act, God does not act. God is hoping and praying that we will answer his, his prayers and tears and truly be his presence and power in the world. A Christian understands that God does not exist unless we incarnate him. We are the body of Christ, as Paul puts it, right? Christ has been resurrected in us as a Holy Ghost uh, if we live out his, his ways of love and justice and care for the least of these. This means that whatever our conception of God may be, and there are lots of conceptions of God here, and that's welcome, some supernatural, some not. But whatever our different conceptions of the divine are, what we focus on most is the ultimacy of love and this idea that God is love, which is to say God is justice, God is compassion, God is kindness, God is liberation for the oppressed, etc. Whatever else we believe about God, that is always ancillary, that is always secondary to these affirmations. Weak theology means holding, holding certain aspects of our theology more lightly so that we may hold other aspects more firmly. Um, so, so those are some of the differences between strong and weak theology. Weak theology, I think, suffers from a bit of a name problem. I hope you see today that, that weak theology is really strong. Uh, it may sound like weak faith or no faith at all, but I think it's actually a deeper kind of faith. But the fact is you can find lots of passages in the Bible to support both, right? To support both a strong theology and a weak theology. People always want to know, you know, what do we do with that? How do we reconcile the strong with the weak in, in the Bible? And I don't think we can, we, we can do that completely because part of weak theology means realizing that the Bible is not perfect. Uh, it didn't drop out of heaven one day. It's very much a work of human hands. And that means it's often a book in debate with, with itself. And I think Christianity and the Christian scriptures, the New Testament, the Gospels, Paul's writings, that these things developed in first century Judaism, at least in part, as a reaction against the strong theology within the Hebrew tradition. Jesus was deeply offensive to some, not just because he called into question rigid interpretations of the Mosaic law, but because he made God look weak. I mean, this is why Jesus was really so offensive to so many of his Jewish contemporaries. He made God look weak. The thinking for many Jews in Jesus's day was, you know, how could the unapproachable and unseeable God of Mount Sinai, right? The, the God hidden on a mountaintop behind a veil of fire and smoke. How could this untouchable God of the Ark of the Covenant, right? Uh, who would kill you for just, you know, laying a finger on it. The God of the inner sanctuary of the temple, which was off limits. How could this God become a simple man you could eat and drink with? Uh, someone who went around cavorting with known, with known sinners and even touching lepers. How could God in all of his glory and might and majesty and power, 
how could this God identify with and prefer the weak and the powerless ones of the world? How could the, how could the ancient of days, the almighty God who split the Red Sea, how could this God be killed, crucified no less? How could this God be so humiliated in this way? This was what made Jesus so offensive uh, to many of his Jewish contemporaries. He, he made God look weak. He made God look like no God at all. And remember, he was convicted by the chief priests for blasphemy because he, a mere man, a, a peasant nobody from Nazareth, claimed to be God in some way. For, for the chief priests and the Pharisees who were deeply invested in strong theology, the God revealed in Jesus seemed weak and powerless and like no God at all. Uh, in a world where power and wealth and strength were equated with godliness, chosenness, divine blessing, Jesus represented a complete repudiation of that understanding of God and that understanding of power and might. And yet for Jewish followers of Jesus, right, the first disciples were all Jew, were all Jewish. For those Jewish followers of Jesus, there was nothing anti-Jewish about them. <laughs> they would point to their own scriptures to support their belief that God stood in solidarity with the poor and the powerless and not with the wealthy and the powerful. For them, Jesus was not the antithesis of the God of their ancestors. He wasn't the antithesis of the God of their scriptures, but the very fulfillment of it. For them, Jesus, uh, Jesus's so-called weakness was true strength. His so-called powerlessness was true power. The power of things like love and compassion and self-sacrifice and, and preferential treatment of the poor and the oppressed. But again, for those invested in strong theology, uh, Jesus was very, very unsettling. So, so this tension between the weak and between weak and strong theology found in our scriptures um, is, is definitely there. Uh, we're not inventing it. In, in fact, you know, we're not the first ones to recognize it. There was actually a, a huge movement in the early church around the year 100, where many Christians followed the, the teachings of a scholar named Marcion. Marcion believed that the loving and compassionate God revealed in Jesus was a completely different deity than the one revealed in the Hebrew scriptures, the, the wrathful and vengeful God we often find in the Old Testament. Now, his movement was eventually labeled a heresy and died out, but it was actually orthodoxy for a long while. Uh, I'm not saying I agree with Marcion, I don't for a few reasons, but I bring him up because it's important to see that this tension in the text that we're talking about today between weak and strong theology um, was noticed a very long time ago. We're not we're not new to that party. And, and I think this means that the New Testament was written, at least in part, as an attempt uh, by some Jews to offer a different understanding of God. Christians down through the centuries have picked up on this weak theology and attempted to realign the church with it. But the church since the fourth century and Emperor Constantine became obsessed with power and wealth and, and therefore maintained a very strong theology because you need a strong theology and, and an authoritarian God if you are gonna claim you know, total power and, and authority on earth as the church did. But there have always been Christians who have pushed back and attempted to realign the church with the weak theology of the cross. Uh, they usually found themselves in a, in a lot of trouble with the church. Luther being one of those 500 years ago. But one can trace these roots of weak theology from the early church through the mystics of the Middle Ages, through Luther and into the 20th century uh, and the birth of liberation theology in the 1960s. 
I want to finish today with this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a Lutheran pastor, deeply invested in, in the weak theology of the cross, and, and he lived during World War II. He wrote this, God has been pushed out of the world and onto a cross. God is weak and powerless in the world, and that is precisely the way, the only way, in which he is with us and helps us. Christ helps us not by virtue of his omnipotence, but by virtue of his weakness and suffering. So that's weak theology versus th strong theology in brief, I guess. Uh, and as always, I want to open it up for comments and questions now. Uh, I hope that model is helpful to you <laughs> in your journey as it has been on mine. Um, but I'm curious about your reactions to this. Um, how, do you, uh, how do you see strong theology and weak theology um, work in our world today? What are, your, what are your thoughts about all this? Anybody? Do you like weak theology? <laughs> the thing that has kind of always struck me is it's a kind of a get out of jail free card. And um, what do you mean? Um, I mean, you mean strong theology is a yes. get out of jail? Yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's just, it's, it's a, we don't have to be responsible for anything. Um, you know, like you said, God is in control, you know, everything's going to be fine. And, and I can see how that can be really comforting. And I know that um, a lot of people find a really, really fundamentalist religion when they're going through trauma. And I mean, even in like AA, right, that's something that like a higher power um, is something that a lot of people connect to. It's, it's hard because I can understand why people would be drawn to it. Um, because it really, it gives them a free pass to do whatever they want and then ask for forgiveness later. Yeah. And that's something that, uh, Christian and I have been talking about quite often, um, when we were talking about the election and Trump and, um, just all the things that he was supposed to represent, um, for the evangelical Christian, um, just the, the whole group of them and how he just did everything opposite, but yet he was forgiven because that's what you do. Right, um, well, because he's chosen. Reflection. Yeah, no, that's good, May. Yeah, I, I wanna respond to that a little bit because I think you raised some really good points. And I wanna say that there's some affirmations that I think we absolutely can embrace uh, as progressive kind of post-evangelicals about God's presence and power. I, I think we can say, um, that God is with us. And, when, and by that, I think we can mean that hope is with us, courage is with us, that, that, there, is, that there is a kind of, you know, that, that we can give ourselves over to the love of life and the love of others in such a way that it can kind of, no matter what we face in life, carry us through. Does that make sense? And in that sense, we can affirm a kind of divine and sacred presence with us, no matter what happens in life. I, I think there is a kind of um, way of affirming a kind of strong theological affirmation there without getting idolatrous or escapist in our thinking. 
as if we're saying, you know, God, just take the wheel, you know, that song, Jesus, take the wheel, right? Uh, but, but I think we can, if by, if we, we can say that God is with us no matter what, if by that we mean that hope and, and love uh, is with us no matter what, and that will always carry us through. I, I think that's a beautiful thing to say that we can still say as Christians, uh, as you know, these kind of deconstructed post-evangelical types. Um, but you're, but you're right. I, I really think that strong theology does uh, inform a lot of what's happening in evangelicalism because there is this idea that we are a chosen people, a chosen culture, a chosen religion, and Trump himself was chosen by God, right? God rules over history. And uh, I have family members who firmly believe that anybody in any serious leadership role in the world was appointed there by God, whether they're evil or good. God never lets people achieve that kind of status without his approval. Therefore, you know, God, you know, they'll use that to say that Trump was God's will. You might not like him. He might be a complete dirtbag, but he's God's will. And you just need to accept that. And, you know, that that kind of thinking is deeply, deeply problematic. For, and Tad DeLay points out that chosenness means never having to second guess your cruelty. Chosenness means never having to second guess, uh, you know, what you do because you're chosen. Right. And it doesn't really matter. Um, you know, so you can see where all that leads. Thank you for, you know, bringing that up, May. That's that's a real problem with strong theology. Yeah. Other thoughts today? Desiree, your family feels the same. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say, uh, I think what I really like about this whole conversation is just how it's making me think about like strength versus weakness. And, you know, what does it mean to be strong and what does it mean to be weak? You know, what is strength and what is weakness? And you're so programmed your whole life to think like, you know, strength, good, weak, bad. And you want to aspire to be strong. You want to aspire to be powerful and, uh, and firm and not just in your beliefs, but just in this kind of general sort of abstract sense. So bless you, bless you, Andrew. But, uh, <laughs> I've been thinking just in like a, just in an abstract kind of totally disconnected sense, like, you know, how can I make myself think like weakness is good, you know? Yeah. And I think just kind of like as a mental exercise, that's kind of an interesting thing to do because when you think about weakness, it's like, I don't know, it's uh, when you're really strong, it's like you're powerful, nothing can touch you, nothing can change you, you are unchanged. And then like weakness is like, you can be changed. You're you're unraveling. You're kind. You're drifting. You know. You're uh, you're breaking. And if you're breaking, you're connecting. You know. There's a way to think about it in a way that has more possibilities than just, you know, total strength and force. And it's just kind of. Uh, I feel yeah. like there's less. There's less avenues for that. So this this is just getting very <laughs> kind of abstract, but. Uh, that's kind of, I don't know, I just was trying to think, like, how can I think, like, because in your, in your, uh, just your language you use today, you're like, you know, weakness can be a type of strength. It is, and I'm yeah. going to go a step further and be like, how can weakness just be a good thing just in and of itself, you know, which is a little yeah. more challenging. Uh, well, yeah, and Brene Brown talks extensively about how vulnerability, vulnerability isn't weakness, vulnerability is true strength, right? Right. Um, the, the people in general, you know, if we're 
if we're at a place where we can really acknowledge our brokenness, our anxieties, whether that's about anything in life, but specifically about our faith, that's actually, a, it can be a sign of deep faith, right? Um, faith in something beyond faith, so to speak, uh, faith in something um, that, that is more true to life and being uh, and, and what's actually um, meaningful about life, honesty, you know, intellectual honesty and openness and, and, and vulnerability is deeply beautiful and, and, and a sign of strength if we can be that way. You know, often, you know, religion functions as a kind of short circuit for that and saying, no, we got to be certain in what we believe and that's what it means to be faithful and strong. No, that's actually a kind of weakness, <laughs> you know, um, being, being radically open to the event of life and to the event of being and, you know, being curious saying I don't have all the answers and I'm curious and I want to, I want to know more. Um, that's, that's a kind, that kind of weakness, weakness is a real kind of strength, right? Um, yeah, Dan, no, I like that. And, you know, Jesus so often, you know, was trying to get people to think differently about weakness and strength. You know, the greatest among you shall be the servant of all. They're the servant, the, the, those who you think are the least of these are true, are actually God in your midst, right? I am the, the th you know, I was the thirsty person. I was the hungry person you fed. I was the naked that you clothed. That was me, you know? Yeah. Um, so Jesus was, you know, what's awesome about the gospels is that, you know, they're just incredibly um, just elegant and beautiful in the way that they're trying to reorientate the way that we perceive things like strength and weakness, you know, and what is real power? What, what is real power? And, um, you know, it's, it's sad to me that so many Christians today in America look at someone like Donald Trump, <laughs> going back to Trump, uh, and see him as an emblem of real Christian power, right? You know, his, his you know, brashness and, you know, F.U. mentality that this is somehow, you know, you know, him fighting for Christian power and Christian strength and the legislating of Christian theology of marriage, you know, these kinds of, yeah, this is power. This, this is, he's an emblem of Christian power. It's, it's, that's a sign uh -huh. of yeah. So anyway, yeah. Thanks for thanks for refocusing that a little bit because I think the way I just realized as you were talking, like that's sort of a that's better than what I than what I was saying because I okay. think I was just trying to get really friendly like with weakness and being like, yeah, weakness is is cool, weakness is good. But you're saying no, like strength is good, but what we think strength is, that's not really what strength is. Yes. Is, yes. That's, a, that's a that's a subtle difference which I think is important. So that's a little bit. It's more positive. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, you know, so much of where we're at, uh, friends, is really about a, a kind of upside. We, we've, we've learned a completely different paradigm of thinking. <laughs> you know, it's deconstruction and, and going through these changes in our religious and political convictions. It's really about a radical realignment of how we look at the world um, through the kind of the lens of Jesus or through the lens of the cross, which I'm saying is beyond just religious application, right? Getting into the political and social. But that is really hard to do. And, and so I'm trying to frame it today in the terms of weak and strong theology as a model, but that's, that's really hard to do. Right. And, um, I, I, um, I, I heard someone say yesterday, I was in a, a training class on anti-racism and they were talking about how individuals and communities really can't skip these steps. We want everybody to kind of arrive at where we're at, like right now, but you really can't skip the steps. You cannot skip the steps that are in between. And for me, I heard that. I was like, you know what? That really is a way of helping me be more compassionate for those in my life that I feel like are coming along, but aren't really where I feel like, you know, I feel like they need to be. That sounds so arrogant. 
but you, you just cannot skip these steps along the way. And so we have to kind of affirm in some ways and have compassion uh, and, and, you know, civility or unity with these people as they journey. The, the key is they got to be on the journey, you know. Uh, some people don't, aren't even taking the journey and aren't doing the work. But for those who are, I think there's endless grace and compassion and understanding. But anyway, other thoughts today? I think there is um, there's space for the, uh, like a non, in, in a sense, the non-duality of that God is both a weak God and a strong God. You know, that for those of us that are in position or in places of power, like America, wealth, prosperity, we need to transcend it through transformational weakness, right? And, but, you know, like we need to transcend this idea of power through weakness. We need to find out, identified with the weakness of You're God. breaking up, Nathan. Any way you could. Yeah, hold on. Uh, you're breaking up, Nathan. I didn't really get any of that. <laughs> you have a weak internet connection. You like what I just did there? Could you maybe, oh, you seem to be, go ahead and talk now. Yeah, Give it a try, Nathan. Unpairing his headphones right now. I'm sure oh, I'll okay. be here in a sec. Okay. Okay, can you hear me now? Yeah, I got you. Okay, <laughs> I was gonna say two things, two really quick things, I'll make them quick. One is I think there's the, in the weakness and the strength thing, I think there's a non-duality that we can sit in that God to us who live in powerful privileged places, we need to overcome our identity as strength by identifying with the suffering Christ, you know, in the weakness. And those who have been persecuted and oppressed and are in other places might identify with the conquering Christ in a way that transcends them um, out of this powerlessness into something new. It's just an idea um, that there could be, that God, God might be big enough to be both, but it's, it, but it flips the script on what we think, you know, it's not the God is powerful for us, you know, but it actually, we have to do that work to see that. And then I'll just say on the other note, you, you had mentioned about, you have to bring people along the way. You know, I spent the last two weeks surrounded by family members that all voted for Trump and, and we had many, many lengthy, lengthy conversations. And I, I, and they had their friends over one night and we just talked for hours, <laughs> but it was very civil. And at the end, um, my, my friend, my cousin's friend, she came up and gave me a big hug. And she, um, she said, uh, I have no one to talk to about wow. this. Like there's no one like you in my life that I can have a reasonable conversation. And the message was, we, we only know about people on the left from the media and from headlines and from this stuff. And I don't, I didn't change her mind on everything. She's not all of a sudden like, oh, you've changed. But the fact that for a lot of people, they don't have someone to have civil conversations with about. And then I saw on social media, she's in DC at the Trump rally, right? But the fact you know, yeah. but, but, but we will project onto people that showed up on that, like they're crazy and they're nuts. But the fact that we had a three or four hour conversation at the end, she gave me two big hugs and said, I'm so thankful that we could talk like this because there's no one I can talk to about this kind of stuff. Yeah. And I'm so thankful.
grateful for this opportunity. I was like, okay, we have a lot of work to do. And I think you're right, you know, like I'm hopeful, but we've got, we've got to provide space for people to ask the questions they need to ask and be, you know, and, and do the work without the, just the yelling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is, is there room for both? Is there, I'm just curious, um, you know, is, is there room for, I, I, you know, I, I think personally, I think some people who have cut ties with family members over politics, um, you know, feel like they needed to do so in order to protect themselves or even to take an adequate stand against and help their family understand that what they're doing is actually deeply, deeply harmful. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not somebody that's done that. I don't know if I ever could cut my family out, to be perfectly honest, um, who voted for Trump. I called my sister last week just to ask her, like, why did you, I'm just curious because I, I told her I don't have anybody else in my life who voted for Trump. And I want to know like what your thinking is. I'm not here to accuse or judge. I'm personally somebody that I just don't feel like I could ever just cut somebody out because they voted for Trump. But I also realize that some people do do that. And I don't ever want to tell them you shouldn't do that. You know, that you're, you're being, you're being, uh, what's the word malicious and unchristian and, I, it's tough to judge, you know. Um, what are you guys' thoughts about that? Do you think there's room to say, F it, I'm out, and F you? I mean, yeah. Max, you're nodding yes. I, I think so. I think so. And I'll, I'll be, you know, I'll, I'll cede the floor here after this last comment. But, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was listening to some people talk and they, they pointed out there's two energies. There's the burn it down energy. And then there's yeah. the, we need to rebuild this energy. And both are appropriate in different times in different places. And you need both. And so there's some people that have the passion and are going to be like march in the streets, burn it down because that's how bad it is. And we will, and, and that it needs to be confronted. And so I withhold, I need to, you know, we can, we can create a space for that and acknowledge that. And some, and I would say some people just need to cut it off because it's yeah. harmful to them. At the same time, there are people that carry with them the, you know, like a, we will rebuild this energy and we need to create those space for those people to, to step into these hard, difficult conversations, to listen, to engage in dialogue. And we don't need to force people into the certain spaces if they're not ready or they can can't do it or that's not what that's not what they bring to the table we need to create space for everyone to do what they need to do and and uh yeah that's all <laughs> i would also say those could be the same people right so you get that can both of those people can live within the same person but i i like that nathan i think that's a really good way of thinking about it and yeah just to echo what rodney said too thank you nathan those are the conversations that need to happen so very glad you had that opportunity. But yeah, I think to answer the question, what it comes down for, down to for me is, um, is being able to draw healthy boundaries and take care of oneself. And for me, I'm always confronted um, <clears throat> when I start feeling like that, I'm confronted, especially by more of my, um, some of my more marginalized friends um, who remind me that it's like, Hey, this isn't, this isn't like a, Hey, let's be nice option. This is like, you have systematically communicated to me despite my pleas. And despite me trying every single attempt to try to help you see my humanity, you're still saying no, and I'm choosing not to. So I think for, for a lot of people like that, I, I, I mean, there has to be that option, right? I feel like whenever I start feeling 
like, oh man, how, like keep talking with them. You got to keep talking with them and you can't cut them out. I recognize that. And this is just speaking for me. We, sometimes when I'm thinking like that, it's, a, it's my privilege that's allowing me to say, hey, because I have the option of saying, I'm going to choose to engage or disengage. Um, but a lot of people don't have that option. Some people's option is like, no, I have to disengage for survival, like in order for me to survive and me to be able to hold my humanity intact and my understanding of myself and all the things that I've worked so hard to grow and all the things that I've like, you know, been in therapy for. I, I mean, and most therapists will tell you, right? Like it can be extraordinarily important to make some really hard boundaries. And I think these are, these are some of the examples and the times in which, yeah, I, there are a lot of people that I'm like, you got to do what you need to do to survive. And maybe one day right down the road, there'll be a chance for healing and a chance for growth in that relationship again, but people got to do what they got to do. Um, yeah. yeah, there's a lot more to say, but I'll stop there. No, it's good. And I want to just recognize uh, Lakin's words in the chat window here. My lake, my lake, my take is, I think the more disenfranchised, oppressed and marginalized you are, the harder it is to have the strength and or patience to, with those who are aligned with power. Yeah, I think that's important to keep in mind. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, you know, it's it's an endless struggle to know how best to respond to, to these things, right? Other thoughts? And it's, it does, uh, for me, this does dovetail with what we're talking about today with, you know, what is weakness? What is strength? <laughs> how, do, <laughs> how do we respond in a way that is, uh, is, is you know, can, can a, a quote weak response to our friends and family in these areas be a kind of strong response or what it, or is strength only saying F you, you voted for Trump, you know, I'm done, I'm out. Right? Well, these are interesting questions. I, I think kind of going back to Nathan's point about maybe the possibility of they're not needing, of us not needing to pick one or the other. I think what we're talking about here with should I say F you to my, my friends and family who are Trump supporters is a good example of, of how maybe there's not one particular stance that fits for every single thing, but it's about finding a balance. Yeah. Not a one size fits all response or approach. People are exactly Because people are individuals, you're right, yeah, yeah. Well, and like they're saying, we need, we need conversations like Nathan happen, had to happen. But at the same time, we need to recognize the, the trauma that has been put onto others who have been or are being directly, you know, I, I can't think of the right word, but impacted, we'll say. That's not yeah. a harsh enough word. I would like a better, like a stronger word, but you know what I mean. <laughs> impacted yeah, yeah. by these hateful, um, the hateful rhetoric. There's something to be said also about just hitting your head up against the wall. So like when you're like, if you're just not making any progress, like if the, if you are just, if you're trying and there is no give on the other side at all, it's just, you just can't, you just can't continue to bang your head against the wall. Um, so I feel like kind of what Tina was saying, um, each person is different and each relationship is going to be different. 
and knowing when to set those brown boundaries, like Max said, I think is really, really important. Um, I don't know. I, I feel like if you can't break through even just a little bit and agree on one thing, then I just, I don't, I don't know if the conversation needs to be had. Um, I don't know. It was just a thought. Thought. Thank you. Other thoughts today? How are you guys doing in general? Um, now that the election is over and well, <laughs> kind of over. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Kind, yeah. Um, but also, you know, with the uptick in, in COVID and all the anxieties that that creates, anybody uh, want to share their feelings right now about their life and where they're at, what they're struggling with or um, what they're hopeful about? Just want to leave time for that. I'm hopeful about the vaccine, I'll be honest. Um, seeing that come out, um, you know, the information come out about Pfizer um, last week, that, that's given me some hope. Yeah, I know, fingers crossed. Anybody really struggling right now? Want to talk about it? Um, they're starting to talk at school about like what will happen. They want us to kind of start going back hybrid <laughs> as soon as like the state will allow. Um, but then none of the teachers want to go back because it's not like we'll see our students. It'll be random groups of students and we'll still be delivering um, lessons electronically. We just might be in the room with students that aren't even in our classes. Oh, wow. Just random groups of students because it's whoever lives together. So like siblings will be together even though they're not in the same grade. Um, and they might be in any, so like the plans are ridiculous and none of the teachers want to go back, but they're saying that like, um, if not enough staff wants to go back, there's gonna be like a lottery system for who has to go and all these things. And like, you might need a doctor's know if you want to be excused from that. And I'm like, I'm like, there's just so many things for us to deal with right now. Like, what is the point? Like, and this is happening during this wave? No, they're like, as oh. soon as it, as soon as like the state allows us to do it, but it's almost like, I understand that they need to make plans, but I also am like, we're going to have them. We're going to talk about this in the middle of like the biggest spike we've had. Like, yeah, yeah this, is, this is so stupid. Yeah. Um, and the way that they're messaging it to our families is like not telling the parents and the families, that the students won't be with their teachers. They'll be with whoever happens to be that person that they're not going to be seeing their friends. It's going to be whoever they've decided is this pod. It might right. not be people they know. It might be people in different grades. It might not be teachers that they have ever had. And I'm like, it, it doesn't make sense. Like it doesn't make sense. Um, and so it's hard as a, as a teacher without, I don't have kids. So I understand, I wish I could be back. I wish we could all be back in person. I wish it was safe for all of us to go back to normal. I love my students. I wanna see them every day if I could. But I also like, 
it's not safe to go back. So it's like that tension of like holding that like really frustrated and anxious feeling, but also trying to make sure that I'm not, I'm doing my best to not pass that along to any of my students who are already anxious and struggling and worried and trying to get into colleges. And like, it's a really hard place to be. Yeah. Well, wow. well, thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah. Can't believe it's been, what is this, November? Eight, is it eight months of this right now? I mean, yeah. I just, I just hope we don't, it's not gonna be another eight months. I don't think it will be, but I really hope that vaccine is a silver bullet. I hope, every, I hope a lot of people take it. <laughs> That's the other issue, right? Anyway. Yeah, I do think that's always something to um, remember that when a vaccine is available, that is a huge and super important step forward, but it only matters ultimately if enough people are willing to get that vaccine to keep safe the people who are most vulnerable. So the 90% efficacy is fantastic in a healthy population of people, but the test still hasn't been done with people who are vulnerable and who are most in need, which is why the rollout's gonna be you know, to the, those people first and who knows when all of us will be able to get it. I'm so excited about news moving forward. I take that with a, some reservation too, knowing yeah. that it doesn't mean we're like out of the woods in a couple of months, that this is still gonna be a long fight and battle. So I hold both of those at the same time. Yeah. And you know, honestly, man, it's like the anti-mask crowd, they might not even get vaccinated, a lot of them, because they don't believe it's necessary or they think it's some kind of government ploy. We are living, I don't want to preach another sermon, but I feel like, you know, it's so important for us to understand the psychology of these conspiracy theories and the paranoia and this the, the will not to know truth today. Um, it is shocking. It is it is ripping our country apart, um, literally. Um, yeah, so that's a concern, right? Um, anyway. Totally, totally. And, you know, and I also like, I always try to dig deeper than the sensationalized headlines too, because 90% efficacy is fantastic, um, but it doesn't mean it's 90% effective and the trial is only based on 90 for people, which is still really important, but it's still a really small sample. So it means oh, it's yeah. safe and not hurting people, but there's still so much to know. And yeah. I know one of the things that probably all your parents are thinking of too is, um, you know, vaccine studies have all been done on adults. And so I don't even, I haven't heard anything yet about what will be safe for children of what ages. Like, I don't know that young children are going to be able to get that. Um, as of yet, which means even more so that like herd immunity is so important, especially for schools. Man, you guys with school age kids, I feel for you and you teachers. Oh, thanks for being strong in this. Holy crap. Yeah. Well, 1130. Uh, thanks for being here, everybody. And uh, yeah. You can hang out and talk a little more if you want, but we'll officially dismiss. Thanks, Aaron. Have a good oh, evening. thank you, Randy. Good to see you all. Thanks so much for being here. For those of you um, 
who know who the DeWeirds are, John and Kelsey DeWeird. Um, uh, John's father passed away um, this week. Um, that's public knowledge. He posted up on Facebook. Um, it's probably also important to mention that his father did die of COVID uh, in Iowa. Um, I feel like that's a, a sobering reminder. Um, John and Kelsey um, have been part part of Central off and on for like the last five to six years. But um, if you know them, maybe say a prayer for them. Um, if you see them on their Facebook, just so you know, the church did um, yesterday, the church meaning uh, Emily and I, uh, on behalf of the church, sent flowers uh, to the funeral uh, in Iowa um, on the church's behalf. So just, just so everybody knows. Yeah, we'll certainly keep John and his family in our prayers. That's so tragic. And I'm praying that we don't hear more and more of that news. Um, but yeah, thanks. Thanks, Aaron. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah.